Now that is one cool version of Yamar, which takes place June 13th, 2000, all the way over in Japan, and is going to be our soundcheck show, the first Japan show of five in this legendary run in 2000. And welcome everybody to episode 74 of the Daily Soundcheck. I am your host, Mike Lawn Memo Minio. I am incredibly excited to be here. We have really, really cool shows coming up. I have Dave Calarco. Mr. Miner is a good friend of mine, and he volunteered to come on for all five Japan episodes. So we'll get to him in just a second and talk a little bit about what he brings to the table. But the Japan run is very, very special indeed. Small runs, and you can hear just in that intro the style of jamming that was very unique in 2000 taking what was going on in Big Cypress and then kind of taking that to a whole new level in 2000. Melodic, ambient, minimalist style of jamming that Yamar gives you a real good preview of what we're going to be going through in the next five episodes. But before we get over to Mr. Miner, Dave Calarco, and our first show, just a couple quick things. You can find us, uh, The Daily Soundcheck, over on the Osiris Podcast Network, which you can find at Osiris Pod. Really cool stuff going over there. Um, We want to give a shout out to the events that are happening. We're taping this, uh, you know, just in the middle of all the Black Lives Matter. And we stand in solidarity with everything that's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement. Myself, I know Dave Calarco as well. So we're really thinking about what's going on. So if the podcast is a little bit much for you and you want to take a little bit of time, feel free. You know, the pod is here for you. It will be there forever. Um, But if you're ready to maybe get a little break, I hope the podcast does a little bit for you. The Daily Soundcheck you can, of course, find at thedailysoundcheck.com. You can follow me on Twitter. It's going to be at Lawn Memo, which is my favorite avenue to plug and talk about things. And you can always engage me about what you find in the podcast and what you like about it. Please go on and give a little like to the Daily Soundcheck on whether on whatever podcast platform you're using, whether that's Apple, Google, uh, if you're on Spotify, all kinds of different. If you give us a rating, it really helps the podcast out, and I appreciate it. You can go to lawnmemo.com if you're looking for all my content. I'm currently running a thing I'm calling Memo Sections, which I'm highlighting all my favorite sections of Fish Jams. I'm up to 50 already, and I'm taking those, cutting them out of the whole jam so it might be a six or seven minute clip of the jam, making a huge SoundCloud playlist, and it's right there for you. All these awesome jams you hit play, there's four or five hours of stuff for you. So it's a really cool thing, and you can find uh, that. Hit me up on Lawn Memo. So let's get into you know, some pretty, pretty special stuff. So I want to introduce my partner for the next five episodes. Now, Dave Calarco, you'll know as Mr. Miner, who blogged for a very long time over at fishthoughts.com. 
we became good friends over the years uh, as we both started to write. And Dave's just a, a, a wealth of knowledge in the fish community. And he was lucky enough to attend this ento- entire run over in Japan and was very excited when I approached him about wanting to do it. And we've got some cool stuff to talk about. So we'll get to that. And Dave's going to come on. Our first episode today is June thirteenth, two 2000, which is Club Quattro. And that's in Nakaku, Nagoya, Japan. And that was the fourth show of the Japan run. So there's three shows prior to this. So Dave and I, we talked about those first three shows because we kind of want to highlight this entire run. There's a lot of sound checks after this show, so we wanted to make sure we highlighted everything before. So it gives you a nice overview of all the stuff that was going on in Japan when when Dave landed. And you're going to have a great time listening to the interview. So our interview runs somewhere around 40, 45 minutes. And we'll have that for you. I'm going to come back after the interview and I will talk about the sound check and, of course, play it for you. So, again, this is my interview with Dave Calarco, also known as Mr. Minor. And this is the first four shows of the Japan run in 2000. Just a listener note uh, we did have a huge storm in Buffalo while this interview was taking place with Dave and I. And you'll hear a couple booms. Uh, so, that's Nothing I could do with the audio. I did my best to kind of edit those out, but I know you can't believe it, but it's not perfect in Buffalo every second of every day. So here you go. Here's our interview. So welcome, everybody, and very, very excited to have a guest that we're going to have on for a couple episodes here. You probably know him, pretty famous guy in our fish community, a reason that I started writing, and a really good dude on the side that I've been got the pleasure to know over the years. So today we have Dave Calarco, also known as Mr. Minor. So Dave, welcome to episode 74 here on the Daily Soundcheck. How you doing, buddy? Doing all right, man. Glad to be here. I'm excited to be on here to talk about these shows, which were a special experience for a bunch of friends and I. It should be, should be fun episodes. Yeah, it's going to be very fun. We'll get into some great shows. Um, you know, it's one of the best runs, in my opinion, in fish history. So we've got plenty to talk about. So Dave, just maybe go in and talk a little bit about yourself and, you know, where you were at this time. And, you know, what, or maybe even let's just start out with, you know, where you what you've done in the fish community, your writing and how you got into that a little bit. Interestingly enough, it corresponds exactly to what we're going to be talking about right now. Um, and. 2000, I uh, had moved from Santa Cruz. I was living in Santa Cruz for a year with some friends who I knew from Fish. I uh, had moved out west right after New Year's 98. And uh, beginning of 2000, moved up to the city. Um, and it was in the midst of this uh, whole dot-com boom that was going on. There was a lot of Internet startup companies happening at the time. And um, I was got a job with some friends of mine, uh, Ted Kartsman and Andy Gaydeal, who had just started the website Jambase, which has grown considerably since then, since then and as uh, a cornerstone of the community on some level at this point. But uh, they had just started the website back then, and uh, they were working under an umbrella company that was called musicfans.com and um, were hiring people. Um, and a couple of my, uh, one of my other friends, girl I knew from Penn was working with them. Uh, and I guess it's pretty much through Ted that I wound up 
hooking up with those guys. And, and for the first half of the year before Fish was playing, you know, working out of their office south of Market in San Francisco, really trying to get their website on the map. And when Fish announced that they were going to Japan, I certainly wanted to go. And I was also in the midst of this job that I just had for about six months, or I probably less than that when they announced it. I don't exactly remember when they announced it. But uh, I proposed to Jambase that, uh, you know, if I went to Japan, that I could actually review the shows for Jambase, which was, as I mentioned, really trying to get a foot in the door in, like, the live music internet space. And um, this was before the time of instant audio access to what was happening. You know, this was... When these shows were happening over in Japan, there was very few Americans there and lots of people that really wanted to know what was happening. And so it was actually during this run that I first created the moniker of Mr. Minor and reviewed fish shows for the first time during this summer. It started in Japan and carried through uh, the summer U.S. tour as well. And so... That was the genesis of this alter ego type situation that I, I created, which interestingly enough, isn't much of an alter ego at all. It's pretty much just me uh, wanting to keep myself anonymous at the time. And so that was when I first started writing about fish. And then when fish came back in 2009, I kind of revived that whole idea and created the blog that, um, a lot of people probably know called Fish Thoughts. And so it all really kind of connects to exactly what we're talking about, interestingly enough. For sure. Um, how did you come up with Mr. Minor? Is it, uh, was there a reason behind that moniker? Harry Hood's one of my favorite songs. I was trying to, I guess, I can't remember the thought process specifically, but as I mentioned, I was trying to kind of just remain anonymous. Like I didn't necessarily want to be talking to people at the shows about what I was writing or didn't necessarily need to put myself out there on a personal level um, in terms of just wanting to kind of keep my experiences at the shows very personal and sacred and kind of just do what I do. And I don't know. Uh, It just kind of came to me. I don't know. I I guess it made sense to have a fish-related pseudonym harry hood is a song i find truly powerful and one of my favorites and uh it just clicked i guess just came to me is it because you just wanted people to say thank you to you or (laughs) no that's like a that was an annoying side effect of it all uh so just if somebody happens to find you now do you prefer to go by dave or do you prefer to go by mr minor i've never i've never gone by mr minor (laughs) so okay Yes, I would prefer to go by my normal name. <laughs> okay. So as you started writing, did you have a writing background or was it something that you grew into? And, you know, talk about kind of the evolution of your writing. Well, yeah, I mean, I've always I've always written, I guess, mostly academically in life. Uh, previous to writing about fish was, um, you know, I, I always enjoyed, you know, the English history kind of side of academia. I was a major history major in college, um, wrote a hell of a lot of 
papers, thesis in college. Um, and so I, I was and someone who felt very comfortable writing. And I also felt very comfortable talking about fish. Um, it came very second nature to me, just like talking about the music. I mean, we talked about it with my friends, you know, in a very free flowing way. And so kind of just put one and one together. And um, I, I had started to write about music for jam bass over the course of that first six months or so of 2000, not necessarily about fish, but like reviewing record releases, uh, concert reviews of sorts. But so I guess there was a little bit of a spark that had started around writing about music at that point. It was really just, you know, a, a two separate passions for writing and fish that kind of felt like a natural combination at the moment. And it kind of just took off from there. So talk a little bit about how you actually were able to pull it off, because kind of in your prime, especially in, when you came back in 2009, you were pretty much going to every show as far as I, I'm I know, and you were having most reviews up by the morning, sometimes at night. So did you review shows right afterwards? You do it in the morning and was that tough or did you take notes or how did, how did, how did that whole process go? Sure. No, never, never, never written anything down at a fish show. I've never taken a note. I, I kind of laugh when people ask me that it's like the most, it's like the antithesis of the fish experience to me, you know, which is very much in the moment, dancing inward eyes, often close, you know, but no, I never, never, never really thought about writing during the show. I would just go to the show with my friends and like do what I've always done, going to fish for years and years, you know, would have my experience. And then after the shows, we would, you know, go back to where we were staying, um, hang out, most of the time I'd listen to the show back during the time where we were all hanging out. Wasn't 100% of the time, but most of the time. And then usually around like, I don't know, 3 or 4 a.m. or something, I'd kind of like go back to my room, bust out a review over the course of a couple hours, eat some breakfast, and go to bed. Uh, that's kind of was my routine. And... So yeah, I would be writing them that night. It was just uh, the most practical thing for me if I was really going to try to be reviewing every show. Once I start getting into the next day, like there's too much that needs to be done before the show, and like I, I, I needed to keep each day separate from each other, I guess. And so uh, I was I was writing after the shows generally uh, pretty late at night, early in the morning after I hung out for a while and kind of decompressed and listened to the music once through or so. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, anything you want to touch on before we kind of jump into Japan or are you good to go or? Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good to go, man. Let's, let's, let's jump in for sure. There's plenty to talk about, about the shows themselves. Okay. So our show that we're talking about today for episode 74 is June 13th, 2000. Um, but, is Dave kind of we talked about this he wanted to touch a little bit about some of the the three shows that took place prior so we're going to kind of talk about in today's episode more of the entire Japan run as a whole and then just a little bit here about the 613 show and then each episode going forward we'll we really buckle down into that show so again you, you already kind of touched on it so uh, you know you, you got the 
the talk with Jam Bass and you got sent over. Did you go alone? Did you go with friends? Yeah, no, we did not go alone at all. I uh, wound up going with probably a group of like 10 to 12 friends of mine that, uh, you know, were kind of my closest fish friends at the time. And I wound up uh, organizing all the travel plans with the help of a, a travel agent, actually, that I knew from back home. She helped me organize all of the hotels and the trains and flights and whatnot. And so basically all my friends kind of just like trusted me to work everything out. And I pretty much presented them with like an itinerary of how we were getting around Japan and we would all stay in the same hotels and we'd all, you know, everything was very organized beforehand, which was really fun to do. Like we all flew over on the same flight for the most part. And so, yeah, no, I definitely went with like a bunch of super close friends that I had been seeing fish with for several years at that point. So it was, it was a really special experience to be able to do that with such a, a large, you know, relatively large group of friends. Um, and there was a couple other people, that I, like another group of friends that I knew tangentially that were, on, that were there as well. But in terms of the people I was with, probably I, I could figure it out, but I would think it's probably around 10 to 12 people. I think we had like five or six rooms in each hotel. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a really amazing trip. So you flew into Tokyo, I'm assuming, correct? Yeah, we flew from San Francisco to Tokyo. We got to Tokyo, I want to say like five days early or so. Okay, um, yeah. Somewhere within like a week to five days early obviously just to kind of adjust time-wise, but also because we were going to Japan. And, you know, I was looking at the the dates last week when we were talking about doing this, this podcast, and, like, I realized there was, like, seven shows in, I believe it's eight nights? I mean, I'm looking at this one, two, three, four, five, six, seven shows, and there was, yeah, seven shows in eight nights. So... It was a yeah. It was a condensed fish run where we didn't have a lot of time to be doing other stuff, you know, in terms of seeing Japan. Right. And so we got to Tokyo several days early to be able to, uh, you know, check out the city. And uh, it's it's easily like the one of the top two cities in the world to me that I've been to, and the other one being New York and Tokyo. But like Tokyo was a uh, it was a trip, man. I mean, it is huge, both in area, like it is like 50 miles wide of sorts. And there's like, there are like five or I can't tell you how many, like somewhere like six or seven, like separate, like downtown areas that are all around the uh, kind of perimeter of the city. Um, it's just like this monstrosity of a city. And it was incredibly fun to check out a culture so different from ours you know during the time we had before the shows it was really just uh you know we saw some sites we went around to the different urban areas we uh ate a hell of a heck of a lot of sushi we you know really just kind of got acclimated to being in another country where we were gonna you know be for an intense week of music, you know, music and psychedelics. And so it was a, uh, a very good 
intro to be able to like get our feet on the ground, kind of get a lay of the land, kind of start to vibe with the culture a little bit, which is an amazing culture in Japan. The people there are incredibly, incredibly welcoming and nice and warm and polite and and helpful. And it's, it's very, you know, as big as the city is, and I don't know the population, I'm sure it's, you know, up there with the biggest cities, but it all, it all works incredibly well. Like people respect each other. There is like, for so many people, everything just flows very easily. And there's just like a very positive feeling about the city. Uh, and so we got there a couple of days before, I think probably like four or five days before uh, the first Tokyo show. And uh, by the time, you know, the ninth rolled around, which was the first show in Tokyo, we were, we were kind of raring to go at that point. You know, we had, we had been settled, we rested, we were, things were, things were good. So you show up on six, nine at a place called on air East. And yeah. that's your first show in Japan. How big was the room? Yeah. I mean, I remember this stuff like it was yesterday and it's crazy. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary at this point. Um, sure. So yeah, it's the, uh, it was at this downtown, one of the downtown areas called Shibuya. And I remember it was like, we walking up a side street and we found this, like, it was a little yellow building, like bright yellow, like aluminum sided building that, uh, was this club we were going to. How big was the room? I don't remember specifically. It was not big, but before I get into the interior of the room, so we get to the exterior of the show. And we see, you know, a couple of Americans and a couple of people we knew, but there was a, there was like a whole hippie Japanese head scene that was there. And these kids like dreadlocks with like selling mushrooms on the street, which I believe were like legal, at least at that time in Japan, they had created like some boot, uh, like fish, like bootleg shirt, not like not bootleg, but like, you know how back in the day people would take logos and transform them into fish, fish, uh, shirts. There was this crew of kids that had taken the Thrasher skateboards logo and turned it into a tweezer reprise shirt and were selling them. And we were just like, holy shit, like blown away. Like, like what's going on here? You know, like we did not expect to see this type of, uh, enthusiasm from, the Japanese people that were going to be at the shows, uh, at least didn't expect to see such a level of familiarity. Um, and obviously that didn't go for all the people that were there, but there was a core group of kids who traveled from all the shows who were like way into fish. And it was, it was exciting to see. Yeah. It was really, um, and so did you, did you end up vibing with them pretty good? And did they speak English or was that just kind of, you figured it out as you went along? Cause you know, every- yeah, we kind of figured it out when we went along. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not like we were hanging out with them during the concerts, but I remember after, after one of the shows, I, I was actually after the Fukuoka show, we were all in like the same like nightclub afterwards, hanging out, um, communicating as best we could. I mean, obviously they could speak, some English and we could speak no Japanese. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was, it worked on some sure. level, you know? Um, but it was just, uh, they were excited that we were there, you know, 
we were excited that they were there and uh, it, it was a very cool situation. I, I think on one of my blog posts that I had written years ago about these shows, I actually have some pictures that I found on the internet of like some of these kids like selling stuff outside the shows. Uh, and I, I can, I don't know, it's pretty easy to search, you know, you just like go to Mr. Minor Japan and you know, this thing. We'll find it. We'll link, we'll link it. Yeah. But um, so yeah, I mean, it was just a, it was a very friendly atmosphere outside the show that first night. And it was, it was really exciting finally got in the room it was a very basic square room one level it was not kind of a no frills type of room there wasn't anything particularly ornate or anything about it but what i do remember specifically was that it was intensely crowded definitely the the most packed show of the run and we were we wound up being like in like the kind of front left corner with a bunch of with all our friends. And uh, remember, we got there and it wasn't that crowded when we find when we went in. It just kept getting more crowded and more crowded and more crowded. And we're like, okay, this is what it's gonna be. And so you know, the show starts and it's uh, it, it's tighter quarters than than we were we were imagining. And then uh, second set starts and you know, fish drops this thirty minute tweezer in Tokyo. We had been like, you know, fantasizing about like months being what what happens if we get to Tokyo and they just drop this huge tweezer, you know? And that's what happened. And like we're like we're like bouncing off each other basically. Like shit's like popping off. Um it was like so exciting. It was so exciting. Um but yeah, like the room itself was very basic. Uh I couldn't have been more than I mean, I'm sure we could find out by Googling. I would guess 1,000, 1,500 people. I mean, I'm thinking like the Fillmore in San Francisco, I think it was like 1,100 people, and it was smaller than that. So maybe it was even under 1,000. I don't know. But uh, it was it was super – it was pretty small. And okay, it was an incredible night. I mean, you know, I, I think most people are familiar with like the 30-plus minute tweezer that they played that night. Definitely like – up there with the best versions and um the whole night i mean it was just probably had to be surreal right surreal yeah and when it really hit us if the show itself wasn't enough you know we walk outside after the show and like you know we're all so high and we're like looking around and like you know everything's lit up in neon like tokyo style and like all the signs are in japanese and they're like if you have been to Tokyo, you'll know that like they have these like they build on top of like their buildings go like they're, they have many tall buildings of which each floor is a different establishment. So like it's just like these these buildings that have like you know restaurants and clubs and other things all within one building and like there's like all these signs on the side of the building that are labeling each business and it's just like we get out and we're like in some like I mean, some some fantasy land. It was wild. And uh, interestingly enough, my my good friend Dan, shout out Freed, was had investigated. We were like we were into electronic music at that point, like Psytrance specifically. Um, and he had found like a Psytrance party happening the night of this first show. Uh, and so we like got on the train with some other part of the city wound up climbing up one of these buildings, like 15 floors. And on the top floor, there's like this 
mega Japanese dance club that we wound up going to that night to see this DJ, DJ Siyoshi. He was kind of like a legend in the Japanese trance scene. And uh, we get into this club and it's like a multi-tiered dance floor with like projection screens like on all four walls. Just like, and we felt like we were in some fucking crazy movie, you know? But like all on like this first night and it was like, you know, we had like a fresh head going in and it, it was just like a very very surreal evening um of the best variety you know it was just really really just everything we had dreamed of um yeah, yeah. and yeah it's just the that that show that whole night yeah. that experience yeah. like it is like imprinted in me you know i can like still see images when i'm talking about it now of like each part of the night and my friends afterwards and i was I was actually just thinking of digging out my photos from this run for the 20th anniversary because this was like the end of using film, you know, like a year or two after this, or I don't even remember ever using film right, after right, this trip. Yeah. Uh, but I remember all of us had these little like point and shoot cameras that, you know, and we were, we we're holding and carrying them around. And I got a bunch of pictures from this night, uh, sure. not of the show specifically, but of like everything I've been talking about around the show. And um, I've been thinking of pulling them out and doing some little retrospective for the 20th anniversary because I can't believe it's been that long. But yeah, man, this is a show to definitely check out for centrally the tweezer itself. I mean, it was clearly a centerpiece of the night and like, you just got to love when like fish is on the same wavelength as you are, you know, like what would you want for the first night in Tokyo for them to do, you know, come out and open the second set with like a fucking monster tweezer and they did it. It's like, it's like a dream come true when it really comes down to it. Yeah. And I would say that that jam certainly kind of set the tone for how fish would play over the next six days. You agree with that? Like, I think it's, and I I had somebody bring up to me that, um, you know, it was recently the 20th anniversary of one of your and my favorite jams, the Radio City Ghost, which almost kind of springboard that sound into what took place in Japan. So I felt like, you know, that tweezer, I mean, I I wasn't there, but, you know, listen to all these shows in retrospect, um, you know, I kind of definitely feel like they were, that was it. They they took the ghost, they loved it. And then what they did is take that tweezer and this was kind of going to be the tone of how the, you know, Japan shows would un- unravel. Yeah, I mean, it certainly set, like, a super exploratory tone for the jams this run, and, like, going through from show to show, they were they were definitely taking things way out there and experimenting quite a bit. Like, it was, uh, yeah, musically, like, it was an incredible run. And, I, I mean, you know, I, summer of 2000 after Japan was great and fall maybe a little less so and then they go into the hiatus but uh you know i've always thought of japan as this run this japan run as like final like elite blowout before the hiatus you know and they kind of like coasted down through the rest of the year but uh yeah absolutely i mean you're you know you, you talk about radio city and right before that's big cypress and you know so you're looking at like you know, that December 99 run into Big Cypress, and then there's a couple, you know, four, four and a half months off, but then, like, the next thing they do is come out and play Radio City, and they drop that all-time ghost, and then it's a week and a half, two weeks later, we're in Japan, and, like, so there's definitely this, like, crest of, like, serious improvisation going on for, like, a six-month period 
for fish during that time and sure. peaking kind of at this point, or I don't know about peaking, but like certainly, you know, carrying through all of these shows in Japan. Yeah. So, so the next night is a place called Zep also in Tokyo. Yeah. Um, so. This was a little bit, uh, so this is like a, so more on the outskirts of town, like the on air East was like very much like down, like in one of these downtown areas I was speaking of. Zep is more on the outskirts of it, the urban downtown area. Actually, it was another kind of like dance club, uh, more of like a formal dance club than on air East, which was really just kind of like a room. Right. This was more of like a club atmosphere right out. It was basically right next to this like amusement park, which was, this is just like Tokyo for you. They just got like everything everywhere. It's just like such a trip to be there. And, uh, we, after this show, were like riding amusement park rides and shit. It was like the weirdest, like most crazy thing. Um, I actually revisited this show. I don't know, within the last year because I was scrolling through set lists and I was looking at the first set and I'm like, Damn, dude, it was like a five-song first set with two 20-minute jams in it. And I was like, that's just, that's crazy. And, like, so, yeah, I mean, the momentum that they kind of, that we're talking about, like, carried right through into the next night. Um, and, you know, they opened the show with, like, this 20-minute disease uh, and then play a 20-minute piper, like, one two songs later. And so, I mean, you're talking about, like, 40 minutes of improv in the first 45 minutes of the show. And... If I remember correctly, this is very like more like high octane, like rockier improv in these two jams, but uh, definitely like stretching things out and like taking things, uh, allowing things to like kind of just organically move where they're gonna go, um, which was definitely a theme of the jams in 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 Japan for sure. It's just like you know, there's no didn't seem like there were any preconceived notions of what they wanted to do, but they just went out there with the intention of kind of creating and improvising, letting things, letting things, you know, go where they would. And so, yeah, this first set was kind of like came out and just like dropped super heavy. Second set, I'm just looking at the set list here now as we're talking. Um, I remember the Zep Sand that has always stuck out in my head as being like a super high quality version. Um, and this was like, you know, that era where they were really focusing hard on like Jaboos and Sands and like a lot of like really layered grooving that they had kind of built, uh, you know, like, you know, this is, this is what I love about late nineties fish is that like their style was so, was like evolving very directly from like one year to another, like, you know, like they would, they would be taking what they did in one particular year and adding to it and uh, morphing it into new directions, you know, and uh, in 99 and into 2000, they were really into these like kind of like drone layered jams where like it was uh, like this hypnotic grooving, you know, like, yeah, like layered hypnotic stuff. And so that sand, I remember being, you know, quintessential 99, 2000 fish vibe. Yep. Perfectly described. Yep. And looking at the set list, I mean, I think probably the gym twist, I mean, the bathtub gin twist was probably pretty good. But like the thing that sticks out for me for this show is the first set and the sands for sure. And like, you know, just going on my memories. I haven't listened to this stuff in a real long time. But like 
as I said, those, in, those memories are so ingrained, and I've listened sure. to it so much over the years. This show, though, the, the venue was uh, it was a little bit bigger, a little bit more roomy. I remember the air conditioning was super nice in, in this show, so it was like a, a different vibe. It's funny what you remember because it's so it is. it's so indelible, you know? Your experience is so imprinted in you that, like, whatever the environment was at the time, you uh, it kind of you can easily recall it. And yeah, this was a this was a fun night. I mean, and we rode we rode amusement park rides afterwards. So it's hard to argue with, man. It's like it was a really good night. <laughs> yeah. So the third night is six uh, eleven, and that's the Hibia. Is that right? Yeah, it was actually an afternoon show. So like there was okay. there was like no turnaround time. Like you know we like slept for a couple hours <laughs> and got back up, and uh, there was Hibia. Hibia Park is like the central park in Tokyo, like or like you know, Golden okay. Gate Park or or Central Park in New York. It was like the the main outdoor park in Tokyo, and so um, I remember we went down there. A bunch of us, or a couple of people, and I went down there earlier than others to kind of just like hang out in the park, uh, you know, check it out. And then there was a J- Japanese jam band that opened for them this day called Big Frog. I don't know much about them, but I remember that they were opening for fish, and it was a funny thing that Big Frog was opening for fish. And so in the middle of this park, there's this outdoor amphitheater. It was, I don't i don't really remember the size of it. It was very, it was not big at all. None of these shows were big. I mean, the, it's all just like relative sizes of smallness, basically. Right. Yeah. Did, did they charge for this show? That's a great question. That's a great question. Okay, you'll be back on if you want to. If you come up with the answer, we'll we'll get back to that. But so yeah, go, go ahead and talk about. Yeah, sorry about that. No, this is a very. This was a really special experience that I and my friends had this day, um, and it didn't even necessarily have to do with the music specifically. I mean, the music was great. You know, it was an afternoon fish show. You know, they're not doing anything monumental. It was more just like playing some songs. I think the Bowie was pretty good, and the Harry Hood was really good. Um, oh, the free from this from this show is really good, actually. This was like in the era when they were kind of still jamming on free, and it's a really good version. But, um, you know, so as I was saying, the first night, like we had met some of these Japanese fans outside before the show. And then, you know, once you get into the show, it's dark and fish is playing. And you're, you know, it's it's just, you know, it's, it's madness on some level. Um, and you're not really like interacting with the other or we were not necessarily interacting with like the Japanese fans that much and just to like pause for a second like there were mostly Japanese fans at these shows like there were not many Americans like I don't know that there were there might have been a hundred American people on tour in Japan maybe maybe I don't know I would almost say less than that I'm, I probably don't know every single person who was there but like it was a very small contingent of American fans over there I've heard about the same, so yeah, yeah, I think you're in the ballpark there. And the Japanese fans were incredibly respectful. Like, they were silent for these shows. Like, it was like what you would always hope for in America and never get, you know? Just, like, people who were just, like, present, respectful, quiet, just, like, taking it in. Um, And so this show, this Hibia show, being in the afternoon, it was light out the whole time. And it was... It was raining for most of the show actually like we all had like these ponchos on it wasn't like downpouring so that it wasn't enjoyable but it was raining and uh but we could see everybody you know like you were 
able to interact, not verbally necessarily, but like energetically with the fans around you in a way that we weren't really able to the first couple nights. And just to be able to see these Japanese fans be so appreciative of what was happening and so excited. It was like a very magical day. And I actually wrote, I wrote one of my yeah. favorite blog posts I've ever written about this show. Um, and we'll find the link for that too, if people are interested in going back to read it. But uh, this was a day that is just like, I really treasure, uh, you know, in the history of, of my fish shows. Um, it was a very, special vibe in the crowd that day and uh it was just so cool that we were all able to just like see each other and kind of like appreciate both like they were appreciating us we were appreciating them we kind of like had this unity that was like palpable on this night uh on this day at the end of the show there's a ra- the, the rain breaks a rainbow comes out they play harry hood it was like it was scripted it was really just a a very special, a very special night uh, or afternoon, I should say. But yeah, I mean, so like it was, it was a pretty quick turnaround for this one. <laughs> we were like, you know, mid afternoon getting ready uh, yeah. to go into the amphitheater, and so um, yeah, these three nights in Tokyo, three days in Tokyo for Fish was was an incredible start to the tour. Just uh, so much fun. Music was incredible. The people sure. were incredible. The food was incredible. The experiences we're having, you know, in Tokyo around the shows are incredible. Like it was, it, it was honestly unfolding like better than you could have written it out. It was, it was really incredible. Standing there in uh, in unity, uh, pretty sounds pretty awesome with a different culture in today's climate that we're sitting in here. I'm listening to you describe that, and it sounds magical. Yeah, it was really, it was a special afternoon. You appreciate stuff like that, you know? Yeah, it was really a special afternoon. And like, you know, we all kind of were talking about this afterwards and we all separately had the same type of experience and feelings. And so it was obviously this like energetic thing that was happening that night or that, I keep saying night because that's what you say, but that day, you know, looking back on, on the shows in Japan, you know, this is the least significant musically, but I treasure this night as much, this day as much as any of the other shows for like different reasons. It was really, it was really that special. So then we get to our sound check show. So this is the first one we yeah. have a sound check for, and that's six thirteen on two thousand yet again, and uh, we're about to come up on the anniversary of all these twenty years, like you mentioned, pretty crazy. Uh, so this was yeah. at Club Quattro, and this is in a different part of Japan. So why don't you just kind of talk about yeah. where that is in the, the room a little bit? Yeah. So uh, this was a, we had a day off, which was much needed at that point. Um, and we took a train to city of Nagoya, which was a, a couple hours train ride. I don't remember specifically. It wasn't super long. But um, Nagoya was a smaller city. I mean, everything's a smaller city after Tokyo, but... Uh, Nagoya was a particularly small city in Japan and the club itself was was a trip. So like this club was like in a shopping mall. Like we had to go from the ground floor up an elevator within this shopping mall and then we got out and you we like took a left out of the elevator and like there was the entrance to the club right there 
But, like, you could walk to the right, and there were, like, stores, and it was, like, a very strange, like, again, a very, like, tripped-out situation. This was the smallest club of the run. Um, I can't imagine there were more than 500 people in there. I think it's probably about 500, if I were to make a guess. Okay. Tiny, just, like, minuscule. Like, you could be, we were, like, at the front of the room, and you could look back and, like, see the back of the room. It was, like, it was nothing very nondescript like you know you weren't you're literally like i mean i said it twice so i'll say it again we're in a shopping mall it was the weirdest thing so it's actually part of club quattro is actually part of a chain there's actually four of them in different parts of japan so when you say that so when you say that you know you can you know it's in a shopping mall and it's it's commercialized yeah i didn't realize that i didn't I, i had no idea that that was the case um yeah so there's so it sounds, you know, I, I you get that vibe. You know, we have a lot of those kind of places here in, in yeah, the States. Yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, there's definitely, like, chain venues at this point, like House of Blues or Fillmore and whatnot. They got, like, locations all over the country. Um, so that makes sense. But, yeah, this was uh, by far the smallest show of the run. Um, I remember it being pin drop silent in there for the shows, like, for the show that night, like, like the other ones were but i just remember like you can it was a situation where like they were it was so intimate that like if someone were to be talking you'd have heard them you know it was like that and so uh yeah, yeah. i remember we were all i i guess we were we we're all up in like the front left corner for this one too and it's not where we were every night but i remember for this one a bunch of us were in like the front left and this is this is the one show that I remember we were closer than any other. And I wound up taking a couple pictures at the show because it was like, it were just like right there. It was really kind of, kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> bar on one side of the room, tapers at the back. So this is a pretty good show uh, as well. Um, I'm a big fan of the whole Mike's groove that ends the first set. The Mike's is really good. Yeah. As is the We Can Pod groove. Yeah. I really, really dug those. And like we're, what, like, before i also think the jibu is very good here uh and, yeah. and the sand so just like you said this was like the perfect you know place for them to play this and the way that they were playing them i think yeah absolutely like they were playing like dance club jams in like these small little rooms you know with yeah. like these like uh and, and so it was i would agree with everything you said like when i think back on nagoya i immediately think of mike's like friends and i would listen to that all the time and then, like, the opening run of the second set, the Jabu, Wolfman's Antelope, and the Sands would definitely be the things that come to mind just from, like, my memory. And, and then you brought up the Yamar, yeah, which yeah. I had no memory of, frankly. And uh, I listened to it the other last week when you mentioned it. And uh, also a very cool jam, like, kind of gets super quiet, and Trey gets into a really, like, interesting, different type of solo. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those shows where, like, I mean you're just like everything's so intimate and so close. Like they could literally do anything and you're having like the best time of your life, you know? And like, so these jams I would say were maybe less exploratory and more like dance groove for like super small room. Um, and it totally yeah. fit, it totally worked. Like the music in the room really vibed on this night. And like, you know, they're masters of that, of reading the reading the environment, reading the room, and, like, figuring out how to play to that environment. And this was a really uh, great example of that, frankly. Um, that Yamar um, is very, you know, atypical. So, uh, 
you know, if you, if you want to hear what Yamar possibly could ever do, um, it's a great representation, has this really cool Japan vibe mm-hmm. to it. And actually right after that, the Fats Enough for You, I thought was really good, really, really good. And like you said, in an intimate room mm-hmm. like that, some of the fish songs like that can really hit home. Yeah. So, you know, I picture myself, you know, that's one of my favorite fish songs, period. Yeah, me too. So being in a being in a room like that, like it would just slay me. And, you know, it doesn't have to be the 30 minute tweezer. Like you said, sometimes the right song at the right time can really do justice. So like a song like that for me in a, in a venue like that is amazing. You know, 100% agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, really had an amazing time this night. Um, nice. it was, uh, a great two sets of fish, frankly, you know, like they, they, uh, it's great song selection and, Jams were super intense, super dancey, very groovy. It's awesome. Great. So I, I think that's good for us to for episode one here, or one episode seventy four, but one with you. I think we did a yep. good job getting into Japan. You did a great job. Your your memory's pretty impressive. Uh, Twenty years later, man. Well, I mean, I'm telling you, man, like, I can't remember what I did yesterday, <laughs> but like I can remember like details from these nights twenty years ago, yeah. and it's crazy. Well, and I think that's true for so many of us that go to fish. It's like these experiences, especially when we were younger, you know, like they were so monumental and, and, and indelible in our lives at that point. And, uh, you know, like it, it was, as I said earlier, like they really like imprinted on your psyche in a way that like, you know, they still do, but it's not the same when you're, you know, in your forties and going to the shows than you are when you're like, 18, 19, 20, 21, you know, and there's like, it's really just, it hits you differently. And then throw Japan in the mix and it's like, yeah, I have these, uh, I have very, very vivid memories of this trip. Absolutely. It's great. So I really. appreciate you coming on to share them. Like I said, we got great news. Dave's going to be on for the next four episodes. Um, the next one is very monumental, which is 614. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. One of the most legendary fish shows ever. We're going to try to release yeah. it right on 614. So it'll be a nice uh, little wake up for or kind of remembrance of to, you know what took place that night. So we'll do a whole episode. Dave will be on. We'll have plenty to talk about uh, for that. So, Dave, again, thanks for joining us for this first episode. You were great. And we'll catch you shortly. Sounds good, brother. Talk to you soon. So again, I want to thank Dave Calarco for coming on, and I look forward to having him on for the next four episodes, and we've got some awesome shows to cover. So let's talk about what we're here for, the sound check, and that's again June thirteenth, two 2000 at Club Quattro. Now it starts off with Ginseng Sullivan, but unfortunately the recording cuts in a little bit late, so it starts late and ends quickly, runs only 53 seconds. We do get a couple of tray jokes in there, which is super fun. From there, we get a 4 minute and 31 second version of Crossroads, which is kind of the highlight of the sound check. It's got that really cool space intro. It gets kind of old school club version feel to it, and it gets even a little bit of jazz at the end. So this is a really cool sound check version of Crossroads. Very, very much into this. Then we get Say My Name, Oh Yeah, which is them basically just going, Say My Name, Say My Name. And then, oh yeah, so this is about almost three minutes worth of fish just being crazy, doing that sound check thing, having a lot of fun. So here we go. This is the sound check from June 13th, 2000 in Club Quattro in Nagoya, Japan. 
Ginseng Sullivan, uh, Jam, then we got Crossroads, and Say My Name, oh yeah.
And um, do I have a, can I hear the other keyboards? So pretty fun sound check, nothing too crazy, but again, I really dig that version of Crossroads, and we got to sneak a bonus track in. These are legendary shows, so I'm going to go and throw down Dave's request, which is going to be what he remembers from this show, and that's the Mike song. So again, this is the June 13th, 2000 Club Quattro in Nagoya, Japan, Mike song.
pretty awesome Mike song. You can see why Dave remembers that so well. It goes right into simple and a really cool segue and then an awesome Wikipog groove right after that. Whole Mike song, simple Wikipog groove is worth checking out. So do that on your own time. It's worth it. Uh, again, I want to thank Dave Calarco for coming on the show, and we are really looking forward to what's going to be episode 75 of the Daily Soundcheck, 6-14-2000. You know that date because it's one of the most legendary shows in fish history, and we're going to cover it all over, every angle. So get ready. We'll have that for you shortly. Hope you enjoyed this one. Again, I'm Mike Lawn Memo Minio. Enjoy your fish, and peace be the journey. This is Mike Ganser of Aqueous letting you know the Daily Soundcheck is part of the Osiris Network. Osiris connects you with podcasts, videos, and live experiences about the artists and topics you love. Visit OsirisPod.com to check out our shows. Osiris works in partnership with Jambase, which connects music fans with the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Check them out at Jambase.com. <laughs>